Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd, and welcome to the Bloomberg Intelligence Emerging Markets Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your host, Damien Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Christian Lawrence, cross-asset strategist at Bank. A real privilege to have you here, Christian. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us here today. Well, thanks for having me, Damien, and uh, thanks to all the listeners for, for listening in. Groovy. Well, you know, look, I mean, most investors, myself included, you know, we believe that the global macro environment is more important than domestic fundamentals when you're investing in the emerging markets. And, you know, for me, I'm wondering if you could just review some of the key macro variables that you feel are going to most drive emerging market credits, currencies, and local rates in 2022. I mean, and from that perspective, perhaps you can give some color as to which asset classes are best positioned and why. Sure thing. Well, I would certainly put myself in that same camp as well, Damien. Um, I, I would like to highlight the Mexican peso in 2019 as a, a great example of that. Uh, if you remember at the time, Mexico was in a recession. I mean, the, the growth numbers have subsequently been revised, so it wasn't a technical recession, but it did contract two or three quarters. And at the time, we thought it was a recession. But of course, by the end of 2019, the Mexican peso was one of the best performing currencies globally purely as a result of its uh, carry trade characteristics. You know, uh, if you adjust for volatility and liquidity at the time, the Mexican peso was the world's most attractive carry trade. So we know that fundamentals and market moves don't always go hand in hand. But when we look to, to the year ahead, I do think we're going to see some greater differentiation based on domestic fundamentals, purely because we're seeing such a, a range when it comes to the likely path of growth, the likely path of inflation, and in turn, the likely path of interest rates. So a little bit more in the way of uh, greater di- uh, differentiation. But it is fair to say that, of course, it will be the global dynamics that are the key driver. And from that perspective, you know, I- I'm really looking at uh, what I think a lot of our-, our listeners will be looking at, and that is inflation, or in some cases, stagflation, uh, politics in the form of elections across many countries next year. Uh, of course, the third year running backed by unpopular demand will be COVID uh, and how that develops. And of course, these risks aren't mutually exclusive. Some of them are are highly interlinked. And one other thing that I would mention is one of my preferred indicators when it comes to global performance and risk appetite is excess credit growth. And we've already seen that start to turn. So I think that that's something we should be watching out for as well. Well, Christian, that takes me squarely into my, I mean, that's like a softball pitch right into my next question on the Fed, right? I mean, the whole world, myself included, are hyper-focused on the Fed tapering. Uh, And look, you know, indeed, we're right to view this as a major risk, certainly in lieu of what we witnessed back in 2013, but many are arguing that this time it's different. Is it possible, in your opinion, that the Fed can actually begin the tapering process and even push through some rate hikes without materially tightening financial conditions in the U.S. with obvious implications for the emerging market complex? Yeah, well, I think if you are a rates trader this year, there's been one trade, and that is fighting central banks, and it's either made you or or it's broken you. And, of course, we have seen somewhat of a a surprise. We've seen 180s. 
We've seen changes in stance quite dramatically over recent months, and not just in emerging market world, but in developed markets as well. So without a doubt, this is going to be a key focus for us going forward. Now, I think Fed tapering is a concern for all risk assets, not just EM. And of course, we did see that on steroids back in, in 2013. But I think some of the weakness we've already seen has been a result of the, the, the Fed um, announcing its tapering and, and the prospect of Fed rate hikes next year. But look, I don't think that this is a repeat of 2013. Communication has already been very gradual and, and drawn out. There were no surprises when tapering was announced, nor were there any surprises last week when the pace of tapering was doubled. Now, we can, of course, discuss the stock and flow. And of course, we know the flow is flowing, but there is still a lot of money in the system. US real, uh, US real rates are still deeply in negative territory, and they're going to stay so, even with the Fed raising rates. I don't see a scenario where we move deeply into positive territory. So even though we we're likely to see a, a tightening of financial conditions globally, this is coming from an incredibly loose standpoint. I mean, from a historical perspective, will still be in highly accommodative uh, territory, even with the Fed raising rates. So, I mean, when you look globally, not many developed markets have managed positive real rates in, in over a decade now. The US was one of the few countries that did, but of course that didn't last long and the Fed started easing again. Um, in fact, back in 2019, we were already calling for the uh, US recession and the Fed to cut rates to zero before COVID even came along. So. You know, I'm a big believer that developed markets are structured to rely on cheap money. The last 18 months have only exacerbated that. So, yes, will we see tightening, but is it going to be a game changer in terms of financial conditions globally? Well, I still think they're going to be loose. So this is all about relative changes rather than absolute levels in my book. I couldn't agree with you more, Christian. And for our audience, let's just be clear here. I believe what Christian's referring to is what makes this time different is perhaps, oh, I don't know, the $1 trillion reserve repo facility that the Fed is sitting on, which must be drained before any balance sheet runoff should really be considered a tightening of monetary policy. But let me go on here. I mean, this time is a little bit different, certainly from the perspective of emerging market central banks. I mean, historically, when the Fed is tightening, they followed the Fed, albeit with a lag. Yet this time, they seem to be ahead of the Fed. I mean, we've seen 12 of 20 major emerging markets having hiked rates by nearly 2,000 basis points since May alone. So, you know, my question for you is looking ahead, do you see scope for additional rate hikes? Obviously we do, but who are the most likely candidates? And I guess outside of China and Turkey, <laughs> uh, who are, I mean, cutting rates, I guess, um, in the face of all this, um, do you envisage any other central banks to possibly have enough scope to begin cutting rates in the coming year? Well, I think most central banks uh, in the emerging market world are going to continue raising rates, but I really don't envy their job right now. Luckily for me, my job isn't to prescribe policy, but to try and predict it. And although neither is easy, I have to say the latter is certainly easier than the former. You know, central banks, um, I, I mentioned Mexico earlier, but, you know, Bankico is in an incredibly difficult situation at the moment. I would say that Mexico is already in the throes of stagflation. And that's the worst situation for a central bank because essentially most have an inflation mandate, but at the same time, they're watching growth slow very dramatically. So I think that one of the, the dynamics we're seeing from central banks is essentially trying to go 
quickly. Um, and I actually think that's something that we might see from the Fed as well, trying to nip the inflation in the bud before expectations uh, become too entrenched on the, on the long-term basis. And again, this is where emerging markets suffer relative to developed markets. Emerging markets, uh, particularly in the LATAM region, have a recent history of high inflation. So inflation expectations become entrenched far, far quicker than they do in the likes of Europe, the US, or Canada, where, quite frankly, unless you're over the age of 50, you haven't really experienced real-world inflation. And I think that that plays a big role in terms of the, the psychology of consumers and in, terms of, and in turn the psychology of investors. So I think when we look to the first half of 2022, we are going to continue to see those rate increases from emerging markets despite growth continuing to slow. But there'll be much greater divergence. This isn't a question of EM moving or central banks moving in lockstep with another. Um, and if I'm right and we see US inflation starting to uh, slow down in the second half of the year, then perhaps that will take some of the pressure off emerging markets. But I certainly don't envy central banks, particularly in the LATAM region at the moment, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and the inflation impulse is just so much more acute in emerging markets. We know this, we've lived this, but you know, let's take a step back. I mean, nearly three quarters of the developed market universe today, I'm talking $30 trillion in debt globally, now suffers from negative real yields, right? And, you know, for me, I mean, you look at this $14 trillion pool of negative yielding debt, which is equivalent to what now, 20% of, of the universe. I mean, really, it's 20% of the benchmark Bloomberg, Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Index. You know, what is the role of emerging market debt in the world of low and negative real yields? I mean, you know, we talk about carry, we talk about trying to harness that carry differential, but really, at the end of the day, what are the long-term implications of negative yields on EM local debt and hard currency credit? Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. The negative yielding debt is a huge issue. And of course, we have some emerging markets with negative real yields now, which would have been almost unthinkable many years ago. Um, and to be quite blunt, a lot of the policies we've seen from emerging markets over the last 18 months would have been unthinkable uh, just a, a decade ago in terms of, well, I say unconventional measures. I'm not sure if we can even call them unconventional anymore. But this creates, I would say, an issue for the global economy as a whole. The, the bottom line is, the main driver of growth in developed markets is the debt. And when you, become, when you create an atmosphere when rates are so low, when debt is so cheap, you essentially create an environment that becomes incredibly difficult to get out of. I don't see Europe getting out of its negative rate funk anytime soon. We know that Japan's been stuck at zero or negative for decades, which I think is a good example of how difficult it is to lead that world. So in, in isolation, you would expect to see significant outflows from the developed world into emerging markets to try and capture some of that interest rate differential. And we certainly know that during good times when risk is bid, we do see that. We do see those carry trades like the Mexican uh, trade I, I mentioned earlier. But the bottom line is we're not in an environment of strong risk on globally at the moment. We're still worried about global growth dynamics. And there is a huge shortage of safe havens globally. Um, that, I think, is the big problem here. We're continuing to see inflows into the likes of Treasury, into bonds, into Japanese bonds, purely because of this shortage of safe havens. And that's also true when you look at outright dollars as well. I haven't run these numbers since COVID, but uh, in January of last year, when I looked at the, uh, the numbers of, of dollar-denominated debt held outside of the U.S., compared it to the availabilities of dollars outside of the U.S., 
There's a huge, massive structural supply and demand imbalance in the euro dollar market, around about 10 times the, the dollar denominated debt as the availability of dollars. And that's, of course, what, one of the reasons why it has this, uh, the dollar has this safe haven characteristic. Quite frankly, Damien, I think if it wasn't for the Fed announcing those swap lines, I know they haven't been used much, but the, the comfort of them being there, I think we would have seen a lot more in the way of dollar strength over the last year. We might not have seen that period of dollar weakness uh, in, the, in, um, in 2020 that provided a bit of help to EM. So my bias very much structurally is that we're going to continue to see inflows into the U.S., even if rate differentials versus EM improve in EM's favor. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, my audience knows that I'm structurally a dollar bull as well. And hence, you know, we're talking out of the same sides of our mouth. But, you know, one one region slash country uh, this year has actually been uh, a, a net recipient of, of of inflows, and that's been China, right? And most specifically, China government bonds, you know, and look, historically, we know the drill, lack of transparency kept them out of global fixed income portfolios. But, you know, index inclusion is now changing the game. And if you just look at China, I mean, it it represents 8.2% of, uh, of the Bloomberg uh, Global Aggregate Bond Index at full inclusion. It would be the third largest country constituent in the index. So, you know, for me, you know, after rising 9.3% in 2020 and now another 8.2% this year. You know, can you talk to me about the risks and opportunities that go hand in hand with investing in yuan-denominated China government debt? And, you know, where would you position and how would you approach that market given your outlook for 2022? Sure. I mean, I'll be quick here. Uh, I'm not comfortable with Chinese assets at the moment, and I don't think I will be in the short term uh, in the next few years either. I'm personally a big believer that tensions with the US are only set to increase. I think the risk of capital restrictions is very high. And to be blunt, I think the risk of putting money into China and not getting it back out is too high for me to personally be comfortable with that. Now, that, that is an advice, and I am by no stretch of the imagination an expert on China. But my personal stance is that this battle for global hegemony has only just begun. It is going to heat up. And for me, that, that provides risk that I'm just not willing to take, unless, of course, um, we're talking about its role in other indices where essentially you're forced to take on that China risk. Interesting. Well, I guess I have to cancel all my receiving positions in CGBs. No, I'm just, but, but look, I, 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 you know, I, I do see your point and completely justified. And, you know, it's even more amazing as you hear about all these people sniffing around in, you know, China property credit right now with the lack of transparency there. But, you know, that's a story for another day. You know, you mentioned it previously, and I'd like to kind of delve a little bit more deeply, Christian, you know, the election calendar for 2022, right? We have a slew of elections coming through in emerging markets over the next 12 months. South Korea, Colombia, the Philippines, and Brazil are just a few of the countries that are guaranteed to see a leadership change in the executive office. You know, my question for you is what we've just seen in places like Chile and Peru, the populist pivot, so to speak, do you see that spreading to other regions? Do you see risk of that, you know, in places like Brazil and Colombia and more broadly across the rest of the EM complex in a post-pandemic world? Uh, yes, I, I certainly do. Um, I actually don't think that this is just a, an EM-specific trend. Of course, we've had the rise of populism in developed markets over recent years. And to me, monetary policy has played a direct role in that, as has uh, social media. Uh, people are angry at rising inequality, which I personally think is partly a result of uh, very low interest rates in developed markets anyway. Um, and it's now very easy to corral the masses on social media. So this isn't going away anytime soon. Now, 
in the developed world, it is a move away from the center. Um, we've seen it with Brexit. We've seen it with the, uh, the, the, the polarization of U.S. politics. We've seen it with the rise of far-right parties in, in Europe. This is a global phenomenon, not just an EM phenomenon, although, of course, EM has far more in the way of, of recent history to that extent. Now, it doesn't matter if it's to the left or the right. If you go far enough in, in either direction, you, you pretty much end up in the same place. But I think that when we look at the, uh, the, the, the post-pandemic world, these factors have only um, accelerated, essentially. People do feel like they've been left behind or they're unhappy with the current government's response to the outbreak. So I think we're going to see more in the way of polarization, more in the way of rising populism. And as I said, that's not just a story for Latin America. But certainly, when we look at the elections coming up, they pose significant risk to markets. I, I think we've already seen that play out um, this early. Uh, but of course, when it comes to politics, markets are terrible at trading political events. They have a very poor history of it. Essentially, they will either sit in the middle and wait for the event to happen and the move dramatically the other way, or they will make an assumption about the, uh, the outcome that is often proven incorrect. We, we, we only uh, have to look at polls in developed markets over recent years, and, and we know that they're not much better in the emerging market land either. So yeah. I personally think political risk is going to be a big story for 2022 when it comes to the LATAM region and when it comes to EM in general. Yeah, no, we don't disagree at all. And, 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 and you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I, I, you know, I have to just ask you about it, you, you know, the lack of safe haven alternatives globally, right? And, um, you know, historically, we'd look at the Japanese yen, the Swiss franc, we'd look at gold, you know, we'd look at treasuries, you know, one area that, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time looking at is, you know, EM local debt, albeit on a currency hedge basis. You know, we've talked in the past about, you know, the overriding negative impact uh, currency depreciation in EM has had on total returns in EM local government debt. But when you can extract that and remove it from the equation, EM local debt on a currency hedge basis actually has a rather attractive risk return profile, right? I mean, it's got a high sharp, it's got small drawdowns, it tracks the U.S. Treasury's very, very closely, albeit with a higher absolute return. My question for you is, in this world that's devoid of safe haven alternatives, do you think there's an opportunity for EM local debt to play a role? I think, I think for tourists in the space, you know, the, the, the old emerging market tourists that we, we often see dipping their toes into the space when things look attractive, I think it's still probably too much of a high risk play at the moment. But for our listeners that are experts in the EM world, yeah, I certainly do think there'll be opportunity. One thing that I've been looking quite closely at recently, though, that uh, I think is a pretty interesting chart is looking at US, uh, US Treasury volatility versus emerging market credit. And you'll actually see quite a, a tight correlation there. Of course, we all know correlation doesn't imply causation. But I do think it's noteworthy, given that I think that at least in the coming months, we're likely to see Treasury volatility remain quite elevated. But I do think that that could come down quite sharply as we get a little bit more um, clarity over the likely path of Fed rate increases. And I think one thing I should probably should take uh, this, this time to, to mention is that one area that I'm a little bit more non-consensus is that I, I do actually see the, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield being lower at the end of next year than it is at the moment. And now that in isolation, we could argue, could be positive for EM credit as well. 
Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, we are already seeing, right, curve inversions in places like uh, Brazil and the Czech Republic and Russia. So, you know, the market is kind of starting to give some signals that, you know, this may be a bridge too far, right, in terms of the restrictive policy measures, which uh, central banks have already put into place. You know, I wonder if you could just help me understand, you know, I mean, we all know that emerging markets as an asset class, despite what we've seen over the better part of the last couple of years, they've grown significantly over the past 10 years. But, you know, this does not necessarily translate into deeper and more efficient capital markets. And, you know, a number of market frictions come to mind, you know, between capital constraints and market access and so forth. And and, and so for my question for you is, you know, how do you view EM liquidity? I mean, and, and do you see any scope for near-term improvement? Or do you think that this battle for hegemony between the U.S. and China and, you know, the kind of ancillary impact to EM throws that all into uh, utter disarray. I mean, I'm just curious, can we hope to have liquidity conditions, you know, improve in uh, in EM assets over the next 12 months? Or is that just sort of a, a, a pipe dream? I think that's a pipe dream. Um, you know, when we look at uh, different emerging markets, we've seen, I know I've brought it up quite a lot, but I think that Mexico is a, is a case in point here. Very deep, very uh, well-respected uh, central bank, very deep financial markets. And if anything, that has almost been a, uh, a banking code has kind of been punished for that in the sense that because it's still the only fully deliverable and convertible LATAM currency, it gets traded as that LATAM and that EM proxy hedge. So, again, highlighting that divergence between currency performance and the underlying economy. But I, I would actually bring up the point we just made when it comes to the political landscape. If you think about uh, emerging market capital, emerging capital markets, are we going to see any improvement over the next 12 months? Well, I think if anything, we're going to see more of a swing to the left when it comes to the political environment. And that certainly doesn't bode well for uh, less in the way of capital controls or, or less in the way of, of regulation. So for me, that's something that, if anything, is only going to deteriorate rather than improve. Now, of course, there can be some uh, one-off exceptions to that. But I tend to think the general trend is going to be less um, uh, openness when it comes to capital markets rather than more. Interesting. So really, I mean, you know, I mean, by 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 association, you're really thinking that um, fiscal deficits are going to remain high across EM, that fundamentals, despite, you know, some of the improvement we've seen in current account balances notwithstanding, that, that they're really going to deteriorate over the coming year. Interesting, which I, I totally agree with you, by the way. Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, before I lose you, you know, I have to ask you this. You know, we all know about the coronavirus. It is still sending shockwaves through the global financial markets. You know, we've learned a lot in the last 18 months. Certainly I have. I'm wondering, you know, what what's the biggest takeaway for you uh, amid the pandemic shock, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, especially the most recent Omicron outbreak, you know, what vulnerabilities and not just specific to EM, but more globally speaking, you know, what didn't you see coming and what were you most surprised by and kind of what's your big takeaway? Yeah, of course. So, look, I know there's a lot of different views out there on vaccine efficacy, but I do believe that vaccination rates are, are going to be important for country performance. Of course, Omicron poses a big question mark. Now, as we know, the early data is suggesting it's incredibly contagious, but not that dangerous. Um, of course, we are extrapolating a lot from South Africa and Botswana data, which uh, there are risks to that given uh, demographics in particular, comparing those countries to the likes of Europe, the US, Canada, the UK. Uh, it's fraught with risks. But 
if we base that as the, the likely assumption and that we don't get a, a, another worse variant down the line, well, there is an argument to be made that perhaps Omicron could be a positive development in that it crowds out things like Delta. Now, there's a lot of ifs and buts. There's a lot of assumptions there. Uh, to be blunt, my main takeaway, and I'm completely shocked that we haven't seen more of it, but hey, politics, is that we haven't seen more spending on the healthcare system. You know, we see countries in Europe locking down completely. And then if you look at the number of ICU beds they had before COVID started, compare it to now, in some countries that are locking down, there's almost no change whatsoever. The cost of locking down an economy is huge, not just in outright activity, but in terms of uh, the, the, the social health of the population. And quite frankly, I think that uh, we should have had a wake-up call. This won't be the last pandemic. We don't know if the future ones are going to be worse or going to be better, but there will be more. We can say that for certain. So I would like to see a lot more invested in global healthcare, quite frankly. But that's kind of a side topic, I suppose. No, no, no. Such an absolutely fabulous point. That's a question I ask all my guests when they come on this podcast, or at least all my recent guests. And that's the first time I've heard that. And I have to say, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, Christian, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always-committed EM enthusiasts for your time (laughs) and your continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thank you so much.